All right, um, you are here for another week of Green Left um, Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane. How's it going? Yeah, not bad. Um, so, what's been happening, Zane? Like, what do you think is the most significant news? I'm mean, going to ask you first before I go on with my um, sort of news stories. <laughs> yeah, putting me on the spot. Um, I uh, heard this week that BP have... Uh, Pulled up stumps and cancelled their plans to um, create another Deepwater Horizon-like incident in the uh, Great Australian Bight. So yep. that's very good news. Yeah, that is very good news. I've um, actually heard of that before. I was actually kind of thinking to myself, because saying you're usually good with environmental stuff, that that will be the first story that you would bring up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Predictable as always. Yeah, because I, I wanted, to, I didn't want to take the spotlight away. I was, I was going to mention that story, but you know, I didn't want to take the spotlight from you. Yeah. Um, is there anything wrong? Oh, yeah. No. Okay, so um, actually, the next kind of news story that kind of happened recently in the past, like just only last week, um, me and Lali were talking about sort of like the, um, we're talking about the marriage equality um, plebiscite, um, you know. Talking about sort of the political implications of it, um, what it could mean for um, LGBT Australians, and how it's sort of like basically, you know, a delaying tactic for the government mm. um, to not pass marriage equality. Um, and um, I sort of remember last week I was explaining to someone at a at the marriage equality rally that followed on the following Saturday. Um, sort of, you know, what the plebiscite meant and why we were sort of arguing for a free vote because. One of the reasons um, the movement has been arguing from a fr- free vote, in my opinion, is basically the plebiscite basically adds this sort of extra kind of layer, um, this extra step. Basically, you have a plebiscite, and then you, it's going to go to a free vote anyway, yeah. um, because the plebiscite is non-binding. It's all dependent on whether the, the it just shows that there's popular support for marriage quality if it were to win. Mm. And, um, yeah, basically I explained, yeah, basically we're arguing for a free vote because basically the plebiscite is, at this point, a delaying tactic because essentially just adds this one extra unnecessary step which costs millions of dollars. Um, but, of course, all this discussion is kind of moot now because um, the good news is that the plebiscite ha- is officially dead mm. in the water. And what was going to happen in the Senate, um, particularly, uh, I know the Greens sort of blocked it, and Labor have said they uh, would have blocked the plebiscite. What about uh, Nick Xenophon? I, I'm pretty sure... Um, Do those senators support marriage equality? I, as far as I, um, I'm aware, Nick Xenophon does support marriage equality. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, and actually most, a lot of the, I think the, um, the, at this point sort of the, where the balance is, the majority of people in the Senate... Um, the lower house and at uh, into um, no um, support marriage equality. Mm. Um, I guess the sort of complicated issues, the political issues, is in terms of the parliamentary vote is that um, the Labor Party. Um, this is where they've been criticised for is they have not made um, it a binding vote for their MPs. They've made it sort of a matter of uh, of consciousness, which is mm. very unlike sort of the Labor Party. What this kind of means is it means that. There's a number of actually um, Labor MPs who are quite conservative who would be who would vote against um, marriage equality on the on the basis that they're conscious, and then there's the Liberal Party who have made it kind of like a binding vote to vote against marriage equality um, for all their MPs. Um, uh, but when usually the Liberal Party 
has um, sort of structures that allows their MPs to always vote on their conscience, like giving mm. them the individual freedom to vote for, in whatever direction they choose. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's it, but um, in terms of you know the bal- the parliament and that the majority of MPs actually do support marriage equality. And if there were to a bill mm. to be put forward, then um, it would pass. See, to me, this this also comes back to the question of proportional representation in the lower house. So we have a situation at the moment where the Greens get eight or nine or ten percent of the vote federally in the lower house, Mm. but they have one seat out of uh, 150 Mm. to show for that, and that's ridiculous. And if we had proportional representation in the lower house, Mm. the Greens would have something like 10 or 12 or 15 seats out of 150, Mm. and then you would have probably Labor and Greens in control and maybe Xenophon team, same as in the Senate, they Mm. would control the lower house. Yeah. And this could just be voted on there. And for me, look, there are some people on the left who say um, this is a democratic thing and, and we should support going to a vote. But I, I think a compelling issue for me as well is that I've seen polls of the LGBTIQ community and the vast majority of gay, lesbian, trans and bisexual people don't want the plebiscite because they recognise it's going to be used to, to stir up hate and mm. I, I think that that's you've really got to listen to the people that this is going to affect mm. when it comes to do you support this plebiscite or not mm. and it's very clear um, it's, it's very clear from the, yeah. from the LGBTIQ community they, they don't want this to happen because it's that's the only thing that's going to come out of it is homophobic dog whistling. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's um, that was one one of the aspects that the um, plebiscite was criticised for, and that it would because how it worked is basically um, in for the purpose of fairness and neutrality, it would give um, equal funding to both sort of pro-marriage equality groups and uh, and anti and anti-marriage, yeah, basically anti-marriage equality mm. sort of conservative groups, and that's why the plebiscite was also seen as a way for the Liberal Party to basically appease their conservative base because the plebiscite essentially allows them to sort of have a voice in this debate because at this point the majority of Australians actually support marriage equality. That's right. Um, and so their views actually seen as being on the fringe of society and, of course, the plebiscite would actually make them would actually create this sort of, the kind of media or atmosphere, and it sort of raises this whole discussion about media. It would raise, it would raise this whole question of, uh, it would raise this, not, um, it would raise this sort of misconception um, that there's sort of this equal debate on both sides, mm. kind of thing. Sort much of like, like you have with the climate. Yeah, debate. much for the mm. climate debate. Um, but you know, I think. <laughs> um, Though climate change is something where it's a question of science, whereas for marriage quality, you know, it's a question mm. of what people... But, of course, at the same time, I think this is an important point that has to be raised, is um, something, a question like, you know, a human rights kind of question, um, I don't think, you know, the majority, you know, 
it's it seems a bit sort of sus that you know mm. it's something that's put to to a plebiscite. As I said in last week's, why isn't a question of whether we go to war or not put to a plebiscite? Mm. Um, you know, we didn't have a plebiscite, for example, for say no fault, fault divorce, which I think is actually a similar kind of thing mm. to marriage equality that should be seen as like just a fundamental human right, and it shouldn't be put to this sort of uh, plebiscite, which allows these sort of all these different media groups to, to basically um, um, spew hate speech. Mm. Yeah. So um, on the different topic, um, yeah, sorry. Okay, um, oh, you know what's a bit remiss? Yeah. It's, uh, we should probably mention that, uh, as is the case every week, we're coming at you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation, and uh, sovereignty was never ceded, and I, for one, would like to pay respect to elders past, present, and future. Mm. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Definitely agree with that. Um, I guess um, we have, like, five... I guess I can sort of um, give listeners probably a preview of sort of what we have coming up um, for our program. Um, we're got to, um, We're sort of... Um, right now, for Free CR, we're going to be... Um, I think it's, like, the four... Um, we're, What's the sort of special event, sort of in terms of like radical radio? Um, it's like a anniversary where we have to. Um, we're going to be playing archival content yeah, from so. 8 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Um, so stay tuned for that. So for this, um, for the, probably the next several weeks, we're probably going to only have like one or two interviews um, for our program. Um, but in terms of interviews we have coming up. Um, um, coming up in uh, around three to four minutes, we have Josh, or probably Josh. I didn't know his last name. We're freaking out. Uh, it's Josh Creaser. Yep. He's um, with 350.org, <clears throat> and he's also the 2016 uh, Young Environmentalist of the Year. Yeah. And he's going to be here talking um, to us about sort of the, cam- um, the current campaign that 350.org is running against AGL, which mm-hmm. is sort of like an cl- energy company that... Um, have been sort of been participating in a lot of what is usually called greenwashing of their of their their practices, and sort of 350 have been sort of camp, made a sort of very consistent mm. campaign against them. <laughs> you actually probably will see posters. Um, I've actually seen a number of posters about um, sort of against um, that criticizes criticizing AGL. Um, that have sort of been put up around Brunswick, Sydney Road, and they all, and those posters all come from 350 because they, they're sort of heading this campaign and sort of provide material and propaganda for sort of peop, um, um, any person to sort of put up and campaign around. Yeah, nice. And then, um, from, following on from last week, um, we have Sarah Halfway, um, who was, uh, who was sort of a, a community activist who was involved in, um, supporting the Geelong refinery dispute, which has actually undergone a massive amount of developments um, since last week. So it'd be interesting to hear um, what she has to say. Mm. Um, so I guess um, one sort of quick um, news story. Um, this is following on from something that was probably reported weeks ago in... Um, on Green Left Weekly Radio, and it's been sort of um, reported in Green Left Weekly. Um, but uh, but there was a Kurdish journalist, um, Renaz Lekin, um, who was um, sort of arrested. Um, who was arrested in Sydney for being um, associated with um, 
the PKK, um, which are considered uh, a terrorist group by the Australian government. Um, so in an article, in the latest Green Left Way Clear, there's an article written by John Tully, who went um, to his hearing in the Supreme Court in New South Wales, mm. um, which he writes here that um, New South Wales Supreme Court Judge Natalie Adams on October 6th reserved her decision on Kurdish journalist Renaz Lekin bail appeal until October the 14th, which is actually today, so there could be um, potential developments coming out. Okay. Um, so he, um, as I said, Lekin, who was charged with membership of the Kurdistan's Workers' Party, which is a PKK, and was reprimanded in custody since July 20, 20th. Um, he, were, he was originally held in um, Sydney's Silverwater prin- Prison, um, but then was transferred to isolation in the Goulburn Supermax Jail following death threats against him by ISIS sympathisers. Um, of course, in his bail appeal, he would have been heightened by the presence of up to 100 well-wishers, mostly members of the Australian Kurdish community, who waited outside the court for the hearing to begin. Um, among them was Jamie Parker, the Green State MP for Bowman, Parker told Green Left Weekly um, that Rennes is a brave um, journalist um, who risked his life to tell the truth about the Kurds' fight against Islamic State. He should be applauded and not jailed. Um, so, based and ending the article, um, because we're going here, um, to, um, John Tully writes that we can be caution, cautiously optimistic that Rennes will soon be free on bail. In the meantime, supporters of the Kurdish have rare to redouble their efforts to have the PKK removed from the terror list. Hmm. Okay. All right. So on the line we have Josh Cro- what's Josh Creaser. Creaser, um, who is with um, Free50.org, and as we said, we're going to be interviewing him to talk about um, their app campaign uh, around a uh, against AGL. Hello, Josh. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, we've also, sorry, um, listeners should also know he also, um, Josh was also the winner of the 2016 Young Environmentalist of the Year. But who gave that award again? Yeah, who did give uh, that, Josh? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was Bob Brown. Yeah. Oh, nice. So you got the Bob Brown Award or something. <laughs> All right. I guess um, the first sort of question um, is kind of like, you know, telling us about this campaign um, that um, Free50.org is running um, against AGL and kind of give the background of, you know, how it started and, you know, what um, just about AGL in general. Yeah, sure. So, look, um, AGL Energy is Australia's biggest electricity company. Um, they're also Australia's biggest carbon polluter, um, and by a long margin. So, you know, AGL, when we're thinking about dealing with uh, Australia's, you know, climate change impact, uh, they really need to be one of uh, the companies we pay the most attention to. Um, and AGL kind of brands itself, sells itself to its customers as this clean and green company. Uh, but in fact, uh, over 80% of the energy it produces comes from fossil fuels and it plans to keep burning coal and gas till 2050, uh, which is just far too long given the kind of uh, climate change impacts we're seeing uh, right across Australia, be it the uh, enhanced uh, bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, uh, be it more and more severe bushfires, be it more and more severe storms, such as the one we saw recently in South Australia. So 350's campaign is about uh, calling out uh, AGL's been in greenwashing um, and informing the community, informing their customers about the impact this company is having. Uh, and we're building a, a kind of nationwide network of community groups that are taking action 
stop and putting pressure on IGO to clean up its act. Mm. Um, Zane, do you have a question? Um, yeah, I'm just wondering what sort of uh, fossil fuel assets are in AGL's portfolio in terms sure. of gas and power stations and stuff. Yeah, so the the three kind of the three big dirty power stations are Bayswater and Liddell in the Hunter Valley. Yeah. Um, just outside the the town of Musselbrook, um, Bayswater, uh, when it comes to air pollution, is one of the the dirtiest power stations in Australia. Um, spews out. Um, Millions of tons of you know, fine particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, mercury, hydrochloric acid, so on and so forth. So it's not only a, you know, uh, a scary one when it comes to climate change, but also in terms of its health impacts. Mm. Yeah, it's the other, stuff. Uh, that's right. Mm. The other power station is a Loyang in the Latrobe Valley, which is burning brown coal, which you know is some of the dirtiest uh, coal on the planet. Um, AGL also owns a few gas power stations, um, and the Camden Gas Project in uh, Sydney, just outside of Sydney, which is the biggest gas project in New South Wales. Mm. Uh, and the community there have been fighting that that coal seam gas project for a long time. They're they're really concerned about the health impacts from leaking wells on their families. Um, the the wells are very close to their houses. Mm. Uh, AGL has a kind of commitment to supposedly close them by 2023, but they have no detail of how they're going to do do that, um, and they want it to happen as quickly as possible. So, uh, yeah, there's many there's many kind of different reasons to, to be concerned about AGL, not only their climate change impacts, but also those community and health impacts that the company has as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, something about um, greenwashing um, uh, that AGL uh, apparently does, and so can you tell oh, us a bit more about, in more detail, about kind of what, what what are kind of the practices they kind of do to sort of absolve themselves of sort of responsibility to make them like to create this illusion that they're um, participating, in, say, environmental sustainability, which is yeah, but they're actually kind of like the biggest polluters. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question, and uh, AGL have done this so very well. Um, it's amazing how many people, even uh, you know, across some environment groups who uh, are kind of surprised to hear that AGL is such a big part of the problem in Australia. So uh, it's true that AGL does produce some renewable energy. About 20% of their portfolio is from wind or solar. Uh, but if you looked at you know, their, their marketing to their customers, uh, if you looked at their website, uh, if you heard their chairman and CEO speak in their AGM, there's basically no mention of the coal or the gas. It's all about um, renewables, 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 um, and they kind of fail to uh, acknowledge that the company uh, is still by far, uh, <laughs> by far away a fossil fuel company and mm-hmm. plans to, uh, to burn those fossil fuels to at least 2050, um, if not longer. So that's the kind of, you know, tension hypocrisy that we're pulling out uh, in this campaign. And, yeah, we're finding when we talk to customers or people in the community who you know, have seen AGL's marketing, have kind of, I guess, believed the spin. They've been, uh, they've been pretty shocked to to learn, uh, you know, kind of AGL's dirty secret to learn a bit more of the truth. Hmm. And what's um, what would 350 think is a good um, alternate um, corporate strategy or whatever for AGL? Like, what are you s- suggesting this hmm. company does? So we're saying that AGL needs to be out of fossil fuels. Uh, within 10 years, by the end of 2025, um, mm-hmm. and that that needs to 
look like not only shutting down uh, their coal power stations and their gas power stations uh, and projects, but also having uh, full like decommissioning and rehabilitation plans for those sites to ensure that you know there isn't like a toxic um, legacy left for the communities near those sites, and also to ensure that AGL works with local, state, federal governments to have transition uh, and support plans for the workers and communities uh, that live near or work in those those power stations or those gas projects. Um, we can't have a situation where, as the inevitable transition happens to renewable energy, uh, big polluting companies like AGL just get to walk away from their power stations, their gas projects, and not be involved in paying for and uh, you know, ensuring that they clean up their mess and, and support communities. So, uh, yeah, those two things are very important that we tie together, both the, the quick closure of fossil fuel projects uh, in line with the climate crisis, but also ensuring that the, the shutdown Actually, that kind of um, makes me think um, sort of what you, uh, um, the alternative you could um, you put forward is kind of like um, basically, you know, you could um, end up in a situation where, say, for example, that AGL um, basically sort of closes shop on all their fossil fuel um, at, um, all the sort of work they do in fossil fuels. They sort of the company goes down under, the workers sort of lose their, all their jobs, but all the sort of shareholders sort of get away with um, um, accumulating sort of all the profits they've made previously. Sort of like um, there's something, this happened in Australia recently with, say, Dick Smith, where, you know, yeah. Dick Smith completely shut down, just workers lost all the jobs, but, of course, all the people, all the owners, I think, generally benefited um, because they were able to, um, and that's this sort of um, idea of a just transition is actually a really good one. Um, so just so that um, you know that the, you don't just have workers losing their jobs. Of course, it'd be good thing if um, those coal mines were going down, but it'd be a bit of a, a downer if it was at the consequence of all these workers losing their well-being, um, their you know their means to live. That's absolutely right, and I guess that's why there is an important role that the government should be playing in this space. You know, the government should be looking at um, policies for the whole energy sector. Uh, to support this transition so that uh, whether it's AGL, whether it's Origin, whether it's Energy Australia, there's actually policy mandating that they have to be uh, you know, putting up the right amount of money for the decommissioning and rehabilitation uh, to ensure that there's uh, support programs, uh, transition programs for those communities and workers um, and that, yeah, as you say, the kind of... Uh, the the company, the, the shareholder focus get to walk away with all the profits and leave behind all the destruction. Um, and so that's why, you know, that's part of, you know, there needs to be a kind of movement-wide approach to this and pushing um, not only companies but also governments to, to clean up their act on the issue of energy transition. Uh, and we see that, yeah, uh, AGL is one important pillar in that campaign. Uh, AGL, you know, not only can they clean up their own act and do this process better, but they should also be demanding that the government comes up with a, a really good and ambitious plan that applies not only to them but also their competitors. Hmm. And in terms of um, profits, have you sort of done a profile on the sort of profits that AGL have been making in recent years? Yeah, so uh, AGL uh, took a bit of a write-down this year because of um, selling off uh, or just stopping a number of uh, proposed gas projects that they had on the cards, including the Gloucester project. So they did um, take a bit of a loss 
for that. Um, they also made some bad decisions around um, the amount of gas they purchased and sold, and they were a bit short and had to buy a lot of expensive gas on the market. So um, they, yeah, they, they, were, they posted a bit of a loss for this year, but they claim their underlying profits continue to rise. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that they have these, they've bought these coal power stations. So uh, Bayswater and Liddell, uh, they only bought in 2014. Mm. Um, and because of how our economy works, because of how the policy works in this space, it is still very cheap for them to run those coal power stations because they get uh, such cheap coal, they get, they don't have to pay really for many of the externalities that they're pumping out into the environment, be it the carbon emissions or the uh, toxic emissions that you know, I was talking about before and have these health impacts. Um, mm. Because of the system, it's still very cheap for them to produce that energy and then to sell it. So that has actually been uh, a source of their uh, you know, rise in profits, underlying profits over the last couple of years is being sold, those power stations. Mm. The other thing to point out here is that the New South Wales government sold them those power stations incredibly cheaply. Um, and in a way, you know, it's another almost element of the, of the subsidy or the support that the state and federal governments have given to big power companies like AGO to continue producing dirty energy. Uh, these are stations and transmission lines that the state built, uh, but then sold them uh, yeah, to uh, power companies uh, for very cheap. Uh, the companies get to make profits for a few years and then uh, you know, probably in their, their ideal world, they just get to, to kind of walk away from the project, as we are saying before, and not pay the full clean-up costs and leave that either to never be dealt with or to the taxpayer. Um, but clearly, that, that needs to be stopped. There needs to be uh, proper um, commitments from these companies to, to close down the plants responsibly, and then uh, there needs to be policy from, from government to make sure that that happens fairly. Mm. And I think that's a real challenge for climate activists and, and, and coal and fossil fuel activists is... Uh, we know that new build renewables are cheaper than new build fossil fuels, but the problem that we face is that it is still cheaper to keep shoveling coal into these old fired, coal-fired power stations that, ha- as you say, have been bought ridiculously or criminally cheap off state governments. That is actually cheaper than forking out for your, for your new wind farms or for your new concentrating solar thermal plants, which haven't come down that cost curve yet like PV and wind have. Um, and on the one hand, you make heaps of profits straight away. On the other hand, wind and solar are profitable, but you're looking at a long payback period to uh, recoup your, your investment and then start generating a profit. And uh, that's a real challenge. It's good to see uh, 350 in this space really pushing on that 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 point. Yeah, look, that, that's right. And we need to do work as well to, to push up the cost of these power plants experience. They shouldn't be able to get away with um, yeah, pumping that CO2 into the atmosphere. We used to have a price on carbon. We don't anymore. But also, um, we should, everyone should be taking a closer look at the um, various toxins that they're releasing into the environment uh, in, in millions of tonnes every year um, and really not paying the price for that. Uh, that should not be allowed to go on. So I think there's there's opportunities to not only be putting kind of public and customer pressure uh, on AGL and other power companies, we should also be looking at um, you know, regulatory options as well to make sure that they're actually paying for the impact that they're having on the world around them. I think if we, uh, you know, if AGL had to factor in all of those costs 
uh, that it's inflicting on the world, it would start to become very clear that these power stations are no longer profitable, uh, mm. particularly in comparison to wind and solar. Mm. Um, I guess moving away from this sort of, uh, I want to kind of hear about, you know, how the sort of campaign has been going and sort of what has 350.org, um, you know, sort of like, you know, how you've been called connecting with community groups, how you've been, what kind of actions have been you've been doing against AGL and what kind of sort of propaganda are sort of you using to, to sort of raise awareness about this issue and to push towards some kind of political action on um, in, in AGL? Yeah, great question. So um, our website for the campaign is dirtyagl.com. Uh, that's a great kind of landing page for, for folks that are listening to, to get a sense of all the different angles of the campaign and uh, we really spell out, you know, the spin that AGL sells and what's actually the real story behind that spin. Uh, the campaign has had kind of many different uh, arms at this stage and it's really just the beginning of this work. We're going to continue building this pressure um, on AGL for at least the next year and beyond uh, up to the next AGM. So the what has already happened, we've seen a uh, number of groups popping up around the country that are uh, talking with AGL customers, uh, signing them onto the campaign and making it, making them aware of the spin that AGL is selling. Uh, at the company's AGM in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, all of their shareholders and all their board members walked past a really big crowd outside the, the venue and uh, we're met with stories from uh, people who live in the Latrobe, Hunter Valleys, uh, people who live in Camden, and people who are living with the impacts of climate change. Uh, so we had yeah, both a really kind of loud visual presence outside the AGM, but then also inside the AGM, a number of community members uh, attended as proxies to the meeting and were able to ask questions about you know, how AGL was or how AGL could, you know, justify the impact that they're having on the climate and on their health and on their community. Um, we're also, uh, you know, engaging with uh, major shareholders in AGL, so a lot of the super funds that Australians invest in uh, are shareholders in AGL, so therefore most Australians actually you know, are investors in AGL. So that's another avenue through which people can become active, uh, can put pressure on their super funds to... I demand AGL clean up its act. And we've been doing uh, tours from Sydney to the Hunter Valley with uh, our volunteers, with with people that are interested to learn more about uh, these power stations and, and what the impacts are for the people living in the Hunter and what a transition means for that community. Uh, those tours have been really popular and we're, we're definitely going to do more of those over the coming, the coming months and years because I think building that you know, city regional connection and understanding of the different uh, ways that we approach this challenge of, of energy transition is, is really critical for uh, us all being able to work well together in this space. Mm, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we'll uh, keep an eye on that. DirtyAGL.com. Check out that website. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Josh yeah. Creaser. Yeah, that was a very, very informative interview. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. Thanks, um, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, right. keep up the good work. Yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Okay, all the best. You too. All right, Josh Creaser there from 350.org on the uh, DirtyAGL.com campaign. Um, I guess in terms of um, one, I guess it would be great if we could maybe talk about some um, what's sort of been happening in the international sort of arena. Um, there's, there's been a lot of... Um, 
interesting kind of <laughs> developments in sort of the United States in terms of politics. I mean, it's going through sort of um, the election um, the election campaign of both Hillary Clinton and um, Donald Trump. Of Ooh. course, of course, the em- a lot of the emphasis has been, you know, when you look at the mainstream media, has been kind of put on sort of like what are the sort of offensive things that John- Donald Trump's thing. Trump has said, which, you know, are incredibly problematic, but it's sort of and completely repugnant, but it's sort of what I feel is that um, the mainstream media is actually not putting sort of emphasis on the kind of, you know, people powered sort of struggles that are like happening in the United States right now that are just much more exciting than sort of any US election of course, the US election does have lots of implications for these movements. Mm. Um, but of course, in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, there's an article here on um, Pine Ridge, Indigenous youth join Dakota pipeline resistance. Um, the article, this is about in regards to sort of the, um, the, um, the kind of ongoing um, struggle against, um, against the Dakota pipeline, which is, you know, what it, it, it basically describes what it is. Uh, it's a pipeline that was basically going to be built on indigenous land in um, the United States and there's been mass protest and um, from the indigenous community in um, the United States with support from the broader community. In fact, uh, actress, um, what's her, uh, a famous actress, Charlene, Ooh, I forgot her name. <laughs> she was in the, uh, in the Fault of Her Stars, if you heard of that movie, but she was actually arrested for protesting against the Dakota Pipeline, which is so good on her. I just wish I yeah. um, could actually remember her name. But she's always, in, always good to get a bit of star power yeah. at the picket. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in the article, um, it states nearly a thousand native um, young um, American youth from the uh, Ogalaya Lakota Sorok tribe are seeking to raise $100,000 U.S. to join month-long protests against the North Dakota Access Pipeline project. Um, indigenous and um, environmental activists say, you know, this pipeline will ruin sacred um, burial grounds and pollute local water supplies, as well as transport oil that will contribute to, to global warming. Um, of course, uh, the Lakota, um, the youth are from the Pine Ridge Indian Reserve in South Dakota, which is among one of the poorest areas in the United States. Um, Lakota youth, it says here, it states here, quote unquote, um, Lakota youth are determined to support their people, make an impact and be part of the history that native tri- tribes are creating right now. The group said by its Facebook page, um, Mana, Ogla, Lakota have already um, played a key part in um, the pipeline opposition. Uh, and um, guess about that. Um, unemployment on reservation is estimated to be anywhere... The Pine Ridge um, Reservation is a third world situation right in America's backyard, one spirit native uh, progress wrote on its website. The reservation has the, the shortest Western life, uh, life expectancy in the Western world outside of Hadley. Unemployment on the reservation is estimated to be anywhere between 85 to 95%, with astonishing 97% of the population living under the federal poverty line. 75% of youth drop out of school. The group said in its dies is academic. Most of the youth have been supporting their elders from afar until now, but are determined to reach the protest site to lend their voice to the movement in person, reads a statement by the youth. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. isn't, isn't that a familiar story? Yeah. We've got the same sort of thing here in Australia. Uh, heaps of mineral wealth being extracted from Aboriginal lands and exported, 
Aboriginal people see virtually nothing of that. Yep. And and you get places like um, up around um, uh, Kalgoorlie sort of area where you have that juxtaposition of, of massive wealth and then right next to it really poor Indigenous communities and that's a international thing that really that really sounds just like something you'd find here in, in remote parts of Australia. Yeah, and including part of this article, um, which, you know, ongoing protests um, against the Dakota Pipeline and, you know, have united more than 300 tribes in resistance. Mm. And, of course, construction has been halted on small sections of the pipeline, but the construction of other sections is set to continue. Um, as it's, And the article closes with, you know, Native American tribes, along with environmentalists, remain determined to continue their fight until the project is suspended. And um, it's kind of, yeah, as you sort of said, Zane, it's like um, there's a lot of similarities with, like, you know, current kind of Indigenous kind of resistance that's currently happening in Australia. For example, in Australia right now, there's a lot of, um, in, like, say, South Australia, there's a big sort of active campaign against, you know, the nuclear waste dump. Mm. Um, being, and, of course, there's also the struggles in, say, um, Western Australia, the Northern Territory over, you know, mining and, um, and nuclear waste because, and, you know, Basically, all these things are, are basically involve the taking of, you know, indigenous land. And, of course, it involves creating massive amounts of wealth that doesn't go um, towards any of the communities or um, support. Hmm. Whilst at the same time, these communities are having their power and water turned off because supposedly we can't afford it. What a load of rubbish. Yeah. Um, I guess we have uh, three minutes to, or maybe we'll just play um, a quick announcement and then we'll go on to pos- our next interview. Word. It is Friday, October 14, and you're listening to Green Left Radio, Friday Breakfast on 3CR. On A55 AM. We have um, Sarah on the line. Sarah, are you there? Hi, how's it going? Oh, yeah, good. All right, so we have um, Sarah here to talk about. Um, we were speaking to her actually last week. Um, she was a community, she's a community activist that were from Geelong that is um, was heavily involved in um, supporting the sort of um, the Geelong refinery strike, and um, in Corio. And um, since then, there's actually been uh, a big victory. So we're here on the radio talking, going to be talking to Sarah about you know. Um, what has happened, you know, since we can, the actual rich um, outcome of the strike. Yeah, so, um, yeah, no, last week it was a, well, in a bit, of a bit of a difficult situation because it wasn't too clear um, how much I could say and how much I couldn't. Um, so in, in hindsight, um, sorry, it was a bit of a non-interview, but um, just to give a bit of an overview... The, the two unions, the Australian Workers' Union and the um, AMWU, the medals, led a walkout on Wednesday morning last week. Um, and that was primarily over safety concerns but also parity um, because they were bringing in new contract groups at like 30% below the wages of the permanents. Um, Thursday, the unions were given an injunction notice by the Supreme Court, um, and that's when the community had to take over. So from the late Thursday onwards, um, it was a community picket, um, you know, holding the gates down there. 
Um, but, but what has come out of it is they, the workers there, all workers at Geelong Refinery, have been guaranteed a 35-hour week okay. and um, a safety audit. So this is the key thing. WorkSafe, Viva Energy representatives and the unions are going to do a full-site safety audit. Um, and Viva has promised that any safety concerns will be addressed immediately. So that's a pretty good win. <laughs> and uh, do you know what the... Um what sort of safety concerns there were? From what, so what I can figure out is it seems to be uh, a cultural, a cultural problem at the mm. business. Um, a lot of like cutting corners, not taking safety seriously. Um, one of the contract groups there didn't even have uh, union HSRs. Mm. Like, um, sorry, health health safety reps. So they kept asking the company. We want HSRs, we want HSRs. Um, and Viva Energy was saying, no, 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 we've paid, we've employed, um, you know, safety people who are Viva Energy employees. So, no, you don't need HSRs. Um, this is for one particular contract group. Um, so, yeah, I think it's more of a cultural problem. But having said that, in the lead up to the walkout, there were seven major safety incidents. Um, WorkSafe was out on site four times. And I believe the straw that broke the camel's back was a worker fell into um, scalding water and from the knee down on one leg um, has sustained first and second degree burns. Mm. and this week he was um, up at the hospital in Geelong getting skin grafts, and I've seen the photo of his leg, um, and suffice to say it was pretty pretty messed up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's important to have a safe workplace on in, in any workplace in any industry, but particularly something like a refinery, if something goes wrong, that's, that's real serious. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, if something does go wrong with that refinery, the blast, like... The blast radius, um, you can probably kiss goodbye to half, half of Geelong. Hmm. Um, and, you know, part of the reason the community was there was not just the safety of individual workers, um, but the fact that Viva Energy, through its budget cuts and staff cuts, wants to get rid of their on-site um, fire, their fireys. They're like, it's a private fire squad. So they're the first responders. Hmm. Um, so if Fever does get rid of those, then that means, what, an extra 10, 15, 20 minutes before CSA gets out there. Um, we, you know, and by then it could be too late. Could, goodbye, Cryo. Goodbye, Northern Suburbs. Um, mm. the train, the train line from Geelong to Melbourne literally goes right over the top of that refinery. So there goes the train line. Mm. Um, yeah, just, it, it, yeah, it's just pretty, pretty disastrous. Yeah, they've got to have their own fireys. It's just it's obvious. Yeah, um, yeah. I, guess, I guess one question I have is sort of tell, tell sort of the the story of you know um, what 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 have you um, what have the workers won and you know how was the sort of how did the campaign kind of develop as it sort of um, went along? Yeah, well, um, I kind of felt like we were just just warming up to it when they had the win. Um, sorry, I'm on another picket at the moment, as you can probably tell. There's trucks going by. 
Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so we were there for seven and a half days all up um, for 24 hours, and we were covering four gates, like four access points to the refinery. Um, we were there as a community picket. We had signs saying, this is a community picket, please do not cross. Um, but physically, physically we were not blockading. Like, we did not have the the people power there to physically stop any trucks if they wanted to go through. Um, but all the, con- like, all the different contracted groups and other outside contractors respected that line. Um, and for seven and a half days, the only people that were on site were the operators, um, and those workers, like, had to be on site for safety issues. Um, so everyone else, there was nothing going in. Um, the the only thing that was going in were things that were absolutely critical to maintaining safety, because, you know, it would have been pretty stupid if we were out there campaigning for workplace safety. And, you know, the nitrogen tanker didn't get in and it all blew up. <laughs> mm. You know, we had to make sure that there was some there was some give and take. Mm. Um, but yeah, most of the workers, the truck drivers, um, you know, were pretty respectful. They'd rock up to the line, someone would scramble up the side of the truck and say, Hey mate, community picket, we're here for safety. You know, it's not safe for you to go in here and they'd be like, Yep, sweet as no worries and they'd turn around. <laughs> um so, yeah. Um, but in terms of the win, in terms of the win, like I've already said, so that's the 35-hour week um, and the full-site safety audit. Um, and, you know, out of that safety audit, they may get, you know, they'll, they should get other things out of that, um, especially when Beaver is quoted in black and white in the local paper and in the agreement that any safety issues raised in that audit will be addressed immediately. Mm. Um, and I can tell you right now that if it's not addressed immediately, there are workers there who will be walking out again. Because mm. yeah, they've, you know, they've had it. We caught, we caught up with some of them for drinks last night to celebrate. Um, the, you know, the crew that was staffing the gates for seven and a half days, they've all gone back to work. They came straight from work to have some drinks. Um, and they're saying, you know, if this safety audit is bullshit, then sorry to swear on radio. Like if it, if it's not legit, mm. um, they'll be walking out again. Mm. Yeah, that that's sort of like the question I was going to sort of ask is you know you know you sounds like you have a victory, but what happens next if um if it if it isn't followed through with? <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Another. Well, another um, yeah. What about the undercutting of wages by bringing in those contractors and and putting them on less pay than the uh, permanents, which is the, like usually contractors get paid more as a kind of compensation for the fact that they're not getting, um, you know, a holiday pay and all those kind of yeah. benefits that a permanent gets. So this practice of undercutting pay with contractors is disgusting. It's like what's been happening down here at the Abbotsford Brewery, Carlton United. Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah, no, it's very similar. And, like, this is happening everywhere um, across all industries. Um so we were primarily the workers that voted on Wednesday morning to walk out. Mm. Um, there was about 300 of them. They were UGL, which most of them are the permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're the ones that are going to be ongoing. A lot of them are locals. Um, and then the other contract group is Wood Group. 
Um, and those workers are on a non-union EBA. They were brought in with a 30% pay cut under undermining um, the UGL EBA. Um, and it was wood groups that didn't have HSRs and this, that and the other. And so those workers were brought in for the shut. So, you know, they just fly around Australia. They pulled apart the cracker, which is the big thing that refines all the oil. Hmm. Um, so these blokes, you know, scaffolders, maintenance workers, um, that kind of thing. Um, and it was them that were sort of, I mean, everyone is at risk at Beaver, um, to be honest with you. Um, but it was just one of the scaffolders was the one that had that burn, burn incident. Hmm. Um, and so the UGL blokes, some of them knew, they realised that, well, you know, if they're bringing in these, you know, guys from Wood Group on a non-union EBA and undercutting our wages by 30%, um, you know, how long do you think it's going to be before they get rid of us? Mm. You know, get rid of our EBA. So, I mean, not everyone realised that. Um, there were a lot of, a lot of workers there who've never done a picket before, um, even though they're union members. Um, so, you know, I, it wasn't a, no one's saying it was a perfect campaign, um, but certainly there was a, a lot of lessons learnt um, by the community and, and by the workers themselves as mm. well. Sounds like it's uh, an unfinished story and that the, that the workers have been emboldened by this uh, practice and... Uh yeah, maybe that contract thing is a, a bit of a simmering thing that's going to come up again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, we were just working with these two contract groups, but when we were down there, there's another whole section of the refinery because, like, if you, if you see the refinery, it's huge and there's different businesses operating in the space um, and there's another sort of field of storage tanks, like storage cylinders, um, and there's the workers building those are all four five sevens, yeah, um, right. and the the workers in like the UGL and Wood Group guys know that well if our safety is is crap if we're getting paid thirty percent below the EPA, you know what are the four five sevens copying? Hmm. And so there's no there's no doubt that those workers are you know up against even worse conditions, um, and it's probably just sheer dumb luck that no luck that no one has actually died. Out on that site, yeah. Right. Um, we're going, we're getting very low on time now, Sarah. Um, but <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, thank you very much for that. Um, would, I would ask you a concluding question, but we actually are very low on time. So thank you very much, um, for your, um, for being on the show. And, um, we'll, if there's any further developments, um, like say, for example, they don't follow through on, on, um, their promises, then maybe you'll be on the, we'll be, um, hearing from you again on what's going to happen next. No worries. Keep an eye on um, Green Left. It'll be a full write-up um, next week's paper. Yeah, I'm looking forward. Good. Rock Thanks, on. comrades. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, um, so now... So um, was, um, Sarah Hathaway there from Resistance Young Socialist Alliance in Geelong, who's been at the uh, Viva Refinery yeah. picket. Apparently, she, um, yeah, for her role in um, that, she had won an award as well from the Geelong Trades Hall. <laughs> Yeah, cool. All right, um, just quickly, we'll quickly go through um, the announcements. Um, right, we should start at the back because it's in reverse. Yeah, yes, I, um, it's 
it's a function of the new Green Left Weekly website because um, we got it from the Green Left Weekly. All right, so um, this Saturday um, there'll be apparently a protest, no nuclear waste dumps on Aboriginal land at 11am, but no location. Um, so I predict it's going to be either the Parliament House, the State Library, or wherever they hold protests. But I think mm-hmm. it's probably going to be likely to be at the part. Keep an eye out on social media. Just keep an eye on social media. Um, on fir- on next Thursday, there will be um, a, a, a forum um, hosted and um, by your young um, Australians Young Unemployment Workers Union at two to four p.m. Um, that is at where is that? Uh, that I is a very good question. It will be at the trades hall. I'm going to have to sort of follow up on where these things are. Um, but uh, now this is something we know, happening, know exactly where it is. Next Thursday, it, this will be at the Trades Hall, a Cub 55 Oktoberfest fundraiser. That will be at 5 p.m. at the Trades Hall, October the 20, 20th at Ligon, corner of Ligon Street and Carton, Carton South. Um, there will be on October the 20th, also happening on that night, seems to be a lot of things, there will be some... Um, um, a Shreedy Victorian leadership on a national project of restorative justice. Um, Professor John Oldman is hosting this free event. Um, basically, it's going to be probably a discussion about Shreedy with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, happening from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Wheeler Centre, and you need to register. So just look up the Wheeler Centre, and you should be able to find it. Um, there will be another thing happening on that Thursday, the 24th of October, at the New International Bookshop, um, the continuation of the screenings of Capitalism Documentary, um, Part 3 and 4. Um, there will be a concert, Nation Blue, on Friday the 21st of October. Um, there will be a sort, of, a sort of rally, um, Walk Together Melbourne 2016, um, Saturday, October the 22nd, 11am Parliament House. Um, but there's also um, going to be, it's not in this activist calendar yet, but there's going to be a rally um, against um, um, calling for justice for Don Dale, uh, um, organised by Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, also happening on that day. Um, they'll be happening at Sunday, October the 22nd at 1pm at the State Library or the Parliament House. I think, I'm not sure if the location is being confirmed, but it will be mm-hmm. either of those locations at 1pm. Just, but just be aware there will be a protest in support of Aboriginal rights. Uh, and a last announcement is Angelia Davis is coming to Melbourne um, Monday the 24th of October and you can make bookings at, well, I don't know where you can make bookings, but there's a Google link it. here. Angela Green. Davis is coming to Melbourne. All right. All right. And sorry, listeners, that we didn't have um, full locations for all of those, but it's not our fault. They just didn't have All right. So um, we're going to move on to um, playing um, something, uh, playing... Yeah, so we've got... Uh Greenleft Radio, uh, we're taking part in playing archive audio from 3CR. Different programs are going to be playing you some archive audio. And this morning, we've got a section from back in 1998. The uh, It's called Setting the Scene, the Waterfront Dispute. It's been put together by Colin McNaughton. And, uh, yeah, it's all about the uh, wharfies taking on Patrick's. Yep. Um, so... Yeah, check this out. It'll, it'll be a, a trip down industrial staunchness memory lane. This is Stick Together, Australia's only and oldest national union and workplace justice program 
on the Community Radio Network. My name is Colin McNaughton and I'm your host. Stick with us for the next half hour. On the morning of the 29th of January 1998, Australians woke to find a radically different world. Overnight, employees of Patrick Stevedoring at Webb Dock in Melbourne were locked out. The scab workers who replaced them, who largely had military backgrounds, wore masks and patrolled the perimeters with attack dogs. It later came out that the scab workers had been trained in a government-supported and covert operation in Dubai. The workplace has become a war zone. Howard and Reith wanted to smash organised labour in Australia, and it started with the maritime workers. This three-part documentary strives to understand the events of the waterfront dispute of 1998. We talk with workers, activists and union officials to help us reflect on the ongoing reverberations of these events, not only on the maritime industry, but also on Australian society. Themistocles, who was a leader of Athenian democracy during the Persian Wars, made the observation 2,500 years ago, he who commands the sea has command of everything. His insight still holds currency. In his own time, Themistocles argued for the expansion of the navy to meet the Persian threat. He persuaded the Athenians to spend the surplus generated by the silver mines on building new ships. The Athenian navy grew from 70 to 200 ships. This move was instrumental in consolidating the Athenian Empire. Cut to the present day, where we can see that Themistocles' insight remains as vital as ever. Observe the control the United States military is able to exercise in the Pacific through its triangle of bases in Guam, Alaska and Hawaii. Through its control of this area of the Pacific, the US is able to 1. Contribute to the containment of China. 2. Exert an extensive military presence in the region. and 3 control global shipping routes and trade flows, thereby giving it an upper hand in the workings of the global economy. Australia is an island continent, and as such is thoroughly dependent upon the maritime industry. Quite simply, if there are no ships, no seafarers, no maritime workers, no ports, there are no imports and exports, and no Australia as we know it. Australia is largely dependent on the export of her fine wool, and the ships which bear it, the men who sail them and load them, forge a link in a vital chain. About this vital chain, Tom Hills, a wharfie and co-author with Wendy Lowenstein of Under the Hook, made the following observations. The ship owners started off as pirates and they never changed. They got rich on colonialism. They transported the missionaries and the guns came later. They made their fortunes in India, China and Africa. They were in the slave trade. They pay their seamen bloody nothing, and they shanghaied them from the waterfront pubs. In most of the world, they could get their ships loaded for almost nothing. Some places they still can. Thus, to paraphrase Themistocles' insight in the new context, he who commands the sea and the movement of goods controls everything. Herein lies the long and bitter struggle between ship owners, governments and wharfies that in many ways frames Australia's history. It is essential to understand the background of the industry, it is essential to know something of the bitter memories of the men who worked the waterfront's hungry miles. Memories of hardship and privation. Up until the 1960s, working on the docks was hard, dirty and dangerous work. Historian Rowan Cale. A very dangerous industry in those days. A lot of uh, 
bodily damage, crushed limbs, amputations, respiratory problems, hernias, allergies of all kinds, exposure to uh, toxic materials. It was very sort of hard, labour-intensive work. Working on the docks was very physical and often consisted of manually carrying goods out of the hulls of ships onto the land so they could be transported to its destination. Workers were often expected to carry excessive loads, often in shifts that lasted up to 24 hours. Injuries and deaths were a daily reality. The conditions the workers toiled under were intolerable, with no job security, poor wages, harsh supervision, dangerous working sites, long and unpredictable shifts, no transport to and from the job, and no meal breaks. During the 1930s, radical poet and Worfie Ernest Anthony wrote The Hungry Mile, which was a term used by Worfies in Sydney for the mile or so of docklands that they would tramp up and down looking for work. It is read by Marie Dolovsky. They tramp there in their legions on the morning dark and cold to beg the right to slave for bread from Sydney's lords of gold. They toil and sweat in slavery. T'would make the devil smile to see the Sydney wharfies tramping down the hungry mile. On ships from all the seas they toil that others of their kind may never know the pinch of want or feel the misery blind that makes the lives of men a hell in those conditions vile, that are the hopeless lot of those who tramp the hungry mile. The slaves of men who know no thought of anything but gain, who wring their brutal profits from the blood and sweat and pain of all the disinherited who slave and starve the while upon the ships beside the wharves along the hungry mile. But every stroke of that grim lash that sears the souls of men, with interest due from years gone by, shall be paid back again to those who drive these wretched slaves to build the golden pile, and blood shall blot the memory out of Sydney's hungry mile. The day will come, I come it must, when these same slaves shall rise, and through the revolution's smoke ascending to the skies, the master's face shall show the fear he hides behind the smile of these his slaves who on that day shall storm the hungry mile. And when the world grows wiser, and all men at last are free, when none shall feel the hunger nor tramp in misery to beg the right to slave for bread, the children then may smile at those strange tales they tell of what was once the hungry mile. To make matters worse, the notorious bull system prevailed, and then a combination of factors, including determined union campaigning and the wartime need by the Commonwealth Labor Government to regulise manpower in an essential industry ended the system during World War II. The bull system pitted worker against worker at times violently. For many labourers, it was a despised, humiliating, demeaning experience. Historian Margot Beasley explains how the bull system worked in her book, Wharfies. Under this system, men assembled in a public place to be chosen for the day's work by foremen or stevedoring agents of the shipping companies. Favourites for work were the bulls, men of such physical strength they work longer and harder than others. Such a system also favoured compliant and docile workers and facilitated discrimination against militant or troublesome men who might agitate for improved conditions. Bribery for work was another result. 
The difficult and dangerous nature of the work, coupled with the fact that work was usually done in gangs, and the workers often lived near each other, clustered around the docks, meant that there were many opportunities for forms of solidarity to be developed, both on and off the job. And the form of their resistance, the traditional one. A tradition born from struggles of the past. To understand the 1998 waterfront dispute, we must gain an appreciation of what happened and the bitter memories of the 1928 dock conflict. Historian Rowan Cale. The main scene of the action is uh, the Melbourne waterfront, but it's a strike against a national award handed down in uh, August 1928 called the Beebe Award, uh, B-E-E-B-Y, Justice Beebe, applying to uh, all waterside workers. The award was totally unpopular amongst waterfront workers. There was a background of unresolved problems on the waterfront. Uh, each port, and there's something like 50 ports in the 1920s, uh, each port's got its own sort of uh, specific industrial problems and uh, grievances. So there was sort of a long resentment, uh, upset, unresolved problems. And then the BB Award comes down and treats the whole of the uh, waterside workers' industry as sort of one waterfront instead of addressing maybe 50 specific sorts of problems. And then there was a criticism about how Justice Beebe and his very large entourage had actually researched problems of the waterfront workers. Wolf is reckoned that uh, he just made sort of a, a series of whistle-stop tours of the uh, various waterfront areas. The award, when it was handed down, was just rejected out of hand, and the Waterside Workers Federation... Uh, it wasn't sort of a very strong central union in those days and what you had is right around Australia a whole series of basically spontaneous strikes. Globally, unemployment's on the rise with the depression. In uh, Australia, you've got uh, sort of a, an anti-union government, an anti-Bolshevik government that's just itching to sort of... Uh, uh, get stuck into the trade union movement. You get the government coming down uh, heavily against the strike, passing through something called the Transport Workers Act, which uh, pretty well tries to drive organised unionists out of the waterfront industry. But what happens is the waterside workers then react. Scabs are enlisted in thousands right around Australia to break the strike. Under the Transport Workers Act, you have to take out a licence to work on the waterfront and you get two sorts of licences being issued. Unionists, for a shilling, they get a pink licence and non-unionists get a brown licence and what happens is that the brown licences basically get preference of employment if the unionists actually take out licences and what the unions, unionists did was actually refuse to take out licences. Anyway, the, the situation deteriorates rapidly. Unionists attack the scabs, the police come in, Melbourne is the centre of the greatest violence, mounted police on horses, there's baton charges against workers, guns are drawn, uh, four workers are actually shot by the cops, one is actually killed, a bloke called Alan Whitaker, a, a Gallipoli veteran. Unionists retaliate, there's a lot of stone throwing, and eventually there's something like seven actually bombings. Somebody goes around and actually starts bombing shipping company property, homes of shipping executives, 
and places where uh, boarding houses where the scab workers are holed up. Eventually, of course, the unionists are uh, actually uh, beaten and they get forced back to work under the old award. A, a scab union is actually registered and wharfies actually go back and take out licences, but they end up getting all the uh, dirty work. The Waterside Workers Union as a national organisation is pretty well scuttled and it has to be it's rebuilt later on by uh, Jim Healy and the Transport uh, Workers Act that day's in place and that's not repealed until uh, the Curtin Labor government in, does it so in 1942 and one waterside worker is actually jailed for 11 years accused of in, uh, a bombing campaign and he stays in jail for 11 years until uh, he's released through the officers uh, and the interventions of Morris Blackburn and Dr Evan. Current Secretary of the Victorian MUA, Kevin Bracken, also made the following observations. There's some funny things with 1928, because then it was the permanents and casuals who de-unionised it, you know, who, they were the scab union, and in 1998 it was the producers and consumers. So they've got an ironic sense of, you know, timing, and it's just exactly what it was in 1928, is exactly what it was in 1998. It was hate for, you know, the lower classes. On making more explicit links between 1928 and 1998, Rowan Cale again. If you look at it on paper, the 1928 dispute and then the 1998 dispute, they match up so amazingly, except when the violence comes in the uh, 1998, it's more implied rather than demonstrated. And by that I mean, well, we don't have guns drawn, we don't have people getting shot and killed. But what we do have on the part of the state is the threat, I reckon, of the use of troops. Now remember, when Corrigan set out to uh, recruit his new workforce, there's a very strange involvement of Australian troops. Ex-SAS personnel who help recruit the uh, Dubai trained workforce and there's a lot of former or questionable status soldiers involved and there are advertisements placed in the army newspaper in the lead up to it. Now this takes me back to the Cold War in the 1950s and in particular a clandestine operation that the Menzies government mounted called Operation Alien, which was the planned use on a grand scale of troops, particularly on the waterfront, to break Union power. And when you read the documents surrounding Operation Alien, maybe attempts to provoke the unions to take militant action, the waterfront unions, and then smash them with the troops. Now, what I'm saying here is that I think that there's a lot of Cold War going on and legacies of Cold War, implied state violence, the uh, 1998 uh, waterfront dispute. And I think, too, that one of the common things between linking that sort of anti-Bolshevik and anti-communist past that we saw with you know, Stanley Bruce in uh, 1928 and then uh, the, the, the anti-communist thrust of the uh, Menzies government, that is still a factor under Reith, Howard, Costello regime in 1998. The common thing from 1928 onwards unions and particularly sort of strong independent unions that 
can organise their workforces and present a very strong collective bargaining power and are very effective, we want to remove those out of the industrial relations equation and if you're not going to go peacefully, we're either going to bash you out with the powers of the state or in the end we're going to bust you and put you in bloody internment camps or jail, as simple as that. I think that's a continuity right through to John Howard's time from the 1920s onwards. From the early 1930s through to the 1960s, under the leadership of Jim Healy, who was a member of the Communist Party, the Waterside Workers' Federation were able to gain significant control over their wages and working conditions. They were also able to engage in some of the most creative and spirited expressions of labour solidarity in Australia's history. This included supporting Aboriginal stockmen and struggles from the 1920s onwards, striking in aid of Indonesian independence and their struggle against the Dutch, creating a union-run and controlled film unit, which produced 10 films from 1953 until 1958, and perhaps most famously, stopping the export of pig iron to the militaristic Japanese government. On 15th of November 1938, the British tram steamer Dalfram berthed at number 4 jetty in Port Kembla. Mitsui, the controlling company for Japanese Steelworks Limited, had chartered the vessel to take pig iron from Port Kembla to Kobe. It was part of a contract to provide the Japanese steel mills with 300,000 tonnes of pig iron. Japan Steelworks was producing military materials for the undeclared war on China. Waterside workers went on strike to defend Chinese workers and peasants who were being murdered by Japanese weapons, which Australia's iron was helping to manufacture. The WWF was able to take this stand and ultimately defeat the government, and in the process create a new name for Bob Menzies, Pig Iron Bob. This song is Pig Iron Bob by Clem Parkinson. Did you ever stop and wonder why the fellows on the job refer to Robert Menzies by the nickname Pig Iron Bob? It's a fascinating tale, though it happened long ago. It's part of our tradition every worker ought to know. Oh, we wouldn't load Pig Iron for the fascists of Japan. Despite intimidation, we refuse to lift the ban. With democracy at stake, the struggle must be won. We had to beat the menace of the fascist rising sun. It was 1937, and aggressive Japanese attacked the Chinese people, tried to bring them to their knees. Poorly armed and ill-equipped, the peasants bravely fought while Australian water-siders rallied round to lend support. Oh, we wouldn't load pig iron for the fascists of Japan. Despite intimidation, we refused to lift the ban. With democracy at stake, the struggle must be won. We had to beat the menace of the fascist rising sun. Attorney General Menzies said the ships would have to sail. If the men refused to load them, we'll throw them into jail. But our unity was strong, we were solid to a man. We wouldn't load pig iron for the fascists of Japan. Oh, we wouldn't load pig iron for the fascists of Japan. Despite intimidation, we refused to lift the ban. With democracy at stake, the struggle must be won. We had to beat the menace of the fascist rising sun. For the Judas politicians, we would pay a heavy price. The jungles of New Guinea saw a costly sacrifice. 
There's a lesson to be learned. We've got to understand. Peace can only be secured when the people take a hand. Oh, we wouldn't load pig iron for the fascists of Japan. Despite intimidation, we refuse to lift the ban. With democracy at stake, the struggle must be won. We had to beat the menace of the fascist rising sun. In the 1960s, work at the waterfront, as well as global trade, was revolutionised by containerisation. Malcolm McLean, in 1956, put out the first containers aboard a new refritted tanker ship and sailed them from Newark to Houston. What was new about McLean's innovation was the idea of using large containers that were never opened in transit and were transferable on intermodal basis among trucks. Containers produce a huge reduction in port handling costs, contributing to lower freight charges and in turn boosting trade flows. Containerization transformed the industry. Thousands of workers were laid off, the nature of the work at the wharf changed, and waterfront communities were dispersed. Historian Rowan Cale. So containerization comes in in the 1960s. It transforms the waterfront completely. Remembering that still in the 19, in, in 1950 you could still see uh, draft horses working on the waterfront in Port Melbourne. So you're moving within the space of about 15 years from draft horses to uh, containerisation. So what does that mean? First of all, once you've got containers coming in, you don't need as many workers. And of course, for the workers, the quality of the work changes as well. So for example, a handful of uh, waterside workers can unload a, a ship in 24 hours. That previously took something like two to three weeks with uh, employing something like 70 workers. So you don't need as many workers either, so it cuts down on manpower. Containers make work cleaner. You're not going to get the same health problems. It speeds up the loading and unloading process and it sort of uh, changes the nature of the work too. So uh, where you used to have uh, people pulling and pushing trolleys and a lot of intensive manual labour, you've got crane technology and you've got various devices like uh, forklifts and stuff like that that uh, move uh, containers and equipment around the uh, wharfs. Another thing that happens when you bring in containerisation was that it sort of it sort of breaks down a sense of community and helping out and sharing. Waterside workers used to fa- function in, uh, uh, in in gangs of workers on the waterfront, and they were very sort of communal, sharing, uh, supportive uh, social units. Once you sort of bring in containers, you, you you break down that sort of communality and that sort of sharing. You'll also find out that as you speed up the labour process and increase turn around the loading and the unloading of ships, it pays away also for the casualisation as well. But uh, the unions saw this coming and uh, they basically made the arguments that, uh, okay, we realise eventually that we're going to have to uh, have our numbers reduced and we're going to have to learn about new processes and things like that. Okay, this is the trade-off. Increased wages for those who stay, job security for those who stay, compensation for those who are out of a job, and the establishment of a decent pension scheme. 
the unions over the years did manage to get these trade-offs in exchange for adapting and helping in many cases with the, the new technology. Globalisation drives containerised cargo and containers fuel globalisation. At present, there are 18 million containers crisscrossing the seven seas. These standardised receptacles have become the building blocks of global capitalism. When goods are shipped in such vast quantities, the transport costs become negligible. Thus, to again invoke and paraphrase Themistocles, he who commands the seas and the movement of goods controls everything, and as such, there are always massive riches to be made for those who are willing to restructure the waterfront. <laughs>